0: looks like we're on. So yeah, welcome to 2023. Might feel like 2021, but this is the, this is a Friday Bridges of Meaning Q&A, and I know I haven't done this for a while. Um, Father Eric developed a pretty uh, heartbreaking meme for me about my negligence, but um, here I am and here we are, and I'm thinking about doing this once a month, probably, unless I have a conflict maybe the first Friday of the month something like that. So um, I'm taking questions not from the live stream but from the Bridges of Meaning uh, short questions for PVK section and Friday live streams and let's get after it and as many have noted you can uh, just post questions there and they'll they'll sit there until I get to them. Um, sometimes I can't answer them, and I've got, I see a question that I probably can't really get into just because if you leave a question that requires homework, it's probably not going to get an answer. So I'll just give you that warning right now. Father Big Mac asks, I recently finished Reformations, The Early Modern World by, by Erie, a book that I believe you read recently. I did and enjoyed it. It was I thought it was quite a good book. Across denominational lines, hellfire and brimstone was a standard tool for Christian preaching and instruction. In our time, many Christians don't lean into Hellfire the way our forebearers did, even if they profess the traditional doctrine of hell. Do you have any insight as to why this may be? I think this is an enormous question that we are not talking about. Now, there's a lot of debate about eternal conscious torment which i'd love for someone to do a study on that term itself my suspicion is that the term the term itself is very recent and eternal conscious torment is as a as a renaming of hell is also quite interesting because notice where the consciousness focus is on The, so Father Eric is exactly right about the emphasis on hell in the medieval church, which was very much the um, foundation for the Protestant Reformation. And if you read Luther's biography, he's, you know, traveling, very famous story. He's traveling through, um, he's studying to be a lawyer. He's traveling through the woods at night. There's a Tremendous thunderstorm, and he cries out to St. Anne um, to be saved. He was in existential terror of hell for his soul. Practices of indulgences, I mean, all of this stuff can be very much tied to anxiety about, um, about hell and afterlife punishment. Part of the recession of modernity is the is the rise of phenomenology. I think that's pretty clear from what we're talking about in this little corner. Phenomenology is at the center of the symbolic world by the Peugeot brothers. Phenomenology is behind a lot of what Jordan Peterson, and when anybody starts talking about being is sort of riffing from Heidegger. Phenomenology, uh, Dallas Willard, who I mentioned in my conversation with John Verveke recently, Dallas Willard, his his, uh, PhD dissertation was on Husserl, again, one of the early phenomenologists. The takedown of modernism is definitely coming by way of phenomenology. So when you look at even if you just sort of study the evolution of the language and concept of hell, it gets interesting. And And scholars have known this, but um, part of how part of what institutions do is slow down change. And doctrine and dogma definitely are part of that function. Now, I, I will sometimes play a little party trick on people, and I'll say something like, hell isn't in the Bible. Um, or the word hell isn't in the Bible, that's what I say, and it's, it's an important distinction. Why do I say the word hell isn't in the Bible? Then they open up their English Bible and say, no, look, right here, it's hell. Well, hell is found in the Latin Bible as such. If you read in Greek, you have either Hades or Gehenna. Um, Gehenna, the Valley of Henan next to Jerusalem, um, where there's a history of child sacrifice and um, uh, burning dump, um, Jesus used that. He also Jesus also used Hades, and Hades, of course, borrows on the old Greek notion. And someone really smart might probably make the connection between Hades and Sheol, because at least there's some similarity between Hades and Sheol. Sheol being the Old Testament place of the dead. So. Obvious, but then of course you also have in the New Testament um, all sorts of Jesus has all sorts of descriptions of what we call hell, where um, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's out of dark, out of outer darkness. There's in the Book of Revelation the great sea of fire for the the angels, uh, the devil and his angels, and all of this stuff. And so there's there's real reason, there's real scriptural reason for the idea of hell as basically Protestants and Catholics. The Orthodox, I'm not going to go into them because I don't know enough about them, but um, yeah, it's, it's there. And so it stays there because it's there. Now, when you get something to something like eternal conscious torment, what you've basically done is taken this word from dogma and doctrine of hell in the Western tradition and reframed it in a phenomenological category, eternal conscious torment. I was actually reading in in preparation for my Sunday school class this Sunday on Romans, some of the different um, approaches to the question of perdition. I'll call it that. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Four views of eternal salvation and punishment. Um, um, Universal salvation, origin, J.W., um, Colenso, F.D. Scheiermacher, and J.A.T. Robinson. Um, reverent agnosticism. That's basically saying, well, theres we certainly have some idea of eternal reward, eternal salvation and punishment. And these people within the tradition sort of take a step back and say and acknowledge that you know what we don't know clement of alexandria maximus the confessor Karl bart um, hans um then baltasar uh, richard john newhouse uh, annihilation of the unrepentant um, the first guy i don't re- i don't recognize and the second one is john stott um, eternal punishment of the unrepentant augustine luther calvin so This conversation has been around a long time. People, Eric, like you and I, who have commitments to um, doctrinal systems, have confessional commitments, obviously have to be careful with um, our language around subscription to these doctrinal statements. I don't I don't say that as an evasion I just say that as that's that's just a reality in terms of your question why these things stick around institutions keep things sticky and again there's there's biblical foundation for this it's it's hard not to Jesus talks about eternal punishment more than anybody else in the bible I know Luke gets upset when I say that but um, and then how that is framed I mean this this is the ongoing conversation that happens in theology. but those 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 four categories that I read, they're fairly persistent because you can see um, you can see people holding to those four categories for yeah, pretty much the entire history of of Christian theology. So, And I also think that these categories are existential. One of the most interesting things, one of the most interesting areas that Peterson talks about is how he frames hell in very existential terms in very phenomenological terms. Peterson isn't new with that. People have been doing making similar observations as Peterson for a very long time. But when Peterson does it, obviously in this strange Christian adjacent frame that he's been operating in, uh, people listen to it in different ways. So insights. Number one, hell isn't going away. I think the How it functions is changing. It clearly no longer has the impact it once did in terms of motivation for pursuing Christ. I don't know, however, that the way it functions psychologically was ever quite as helpful as we imagine it might be. I think we give our heart to Christ, not out of fear, but out of love. And for that reason, even though I told a story recently in my adult Sunday school class where some old sinner decides to go to church because he's got anxiety about hell, and he keeps going to church, not because he keeps having anxiety about hell, but because he begins to fall in love with Jesus, I can use that language, he begins to find a transformation is undergoing in his soul. He begins to be attracted by beauty and goodness that he finds beginning to be evident in his heart and life, which is encouraged by the community of the saints, etc., etc. In other words, yes, hell avoidance, fear of hell, was definitely a motivating factor and continues to be. I, so as you probably have the same experience, father, I, there are times when I am sitting with people who are dying and they have a lot of anxiety about facing their judgment. Now, when I say judgment, I don't necessarily mean their condemnation, but their evaluation. And it is not, and of course, this is instantiated in Catholic practice, um, to make confessions on your deathbed. You're going to meet your maker. Um, It's a good time to do some evaluating. It's a good time to make confessions of the ways that you have failed to love God and love your neighbor. So I I don't think any of this is going away. I think there are deep roots for all of this in all of us, or at least most of us. And I think this idea of eternal reward and punishment, will continue to be, it's a biblical theme, will continue to be also an existential and experiential reality in the church and beyond it. So I also have thoughts on why life in as brutal a world as the world has been for much of humanity would support ideas about judgment and damnation in the afterlife. These ideas are not unique to Christianity by any means. Could it also be that for wealthy, comfortable, affluent people who are living in Societies where they enjoy the kind of stability that has been seldom produced at the kind of scale that we enjoy it in Western affluent society that the imagination of afterlife perdition would wither. Miroslav Volf, in a quote that I often use on um, the Western imagination of a very non judgmental God, points to this and suggests, as someone who grew up in war torn Yugoslavia, that the lack of understanding of a God of judgment is. To one degree or another perhaps the product of people who live secure, happy, people who feel like they don't have a lot to have to forgive others for. It's interesting as I watch conflicts grow in Christian communities where, um, let's say, I don't think it would be unusual to have people wish hell upon slave owners or uh, child molesters, or in other words, when, when people have received a deep wound and they have a very existential sense that something deeply good and right in the universe has been violated and they wish there to be a god in heaven that will bring justice and punishment upon those who have perpetrated these evils that's why i've often said that for many people in the west hell isn't completely banished you just find stalin and mao and hitler and pol pot and idi amin and papa doc and you know you just find um, genocidal dictators in it and perhaps their neighbor who was a who's a who's an an enemy of theirs in other words people populate hell with their enemies so i don't think it's going away but i think we will continue to chew on it in the ways that christian theology has always chewed on it all the way back to you know clement of alexandria maximus the confessor And I I think in many ways, the conversations around how exactly this God who who exhibited the generosity that he does by the gift of his son would actually bring punishment on the perpetrators of the world. So... Yeah, I think I think it's going to continue to royal. So, all right, y'all in the uh, PVK Q and A recorded voice chat. I'm going to get my water bottle and take a drink of water. I see some people in here who definitely going to have to want have something to say about this. So, go ahead. Luke must be busy. He can't. He can't do it. Go ahead. Yeah, I was about
1: to say, "Where's, where's Luke?" Uh, the mute button's not going off.
0: <laughs> he must be busy.
1: I mean, Paul, uh, a question. We were having a conversation
0: on a related topic yesterday uh, on Jacob's server, but um, your thoughts on C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce? I think Lewis tries to hold, as Lewis usually does, hold all the sides together in tension. Hell is uh, locked from the inside. Um, Now, there's in a lot of, let's call them eventual universalists, the idea that basically in the afterlife there will be an arena where the love of God will continually wear down the rebellion of even the most calcitrant sinner. And this goes all the way up to and including in some the um, conversion of the devil and his angels. So there's this, you know, there's a lot of conversation as to whether or not the devil and his angels can be saved. And I think the majority of the tradition, Christian tradition has said no. Well, this stuff gets obviously speculative. Lewis didn't go there. Lewis Lewis also had, so on one hand, you've got the idea of perhaps in the afterlife, there is an arena where um, even those who have rejected God consistently in this lifetime will continue to be subjugated to the love and influence of God. Lewis sort of keeps that open in The Great Divorce, where there is a bus that can go from the gray city and people can decide whether or not they wish to tolerate the reality of um, of heaven, let's call it. And Lewis goes into all of these ideas. It's it's a very you know clever, imaginative story, and Lewis plays with the ideas with archetypal characters from his world, which is part of the reason that the book is the book is getting dated quickly. But. Lewis also has in, in that book the idea that rebellion against God is also a progressive disease, and and there's experiential there's experiential verification for that. Um, if if left in our rebellion, often people let we can look at it. Let's say addictions often go terminal. Sometimes they don't. And that's interesting. So, why do we turn? And that's the great question of the mystery of salvation, which is why do some turn and some don't turn? And again, we're just seeing within the framing of a human life. And so, I think part of the eventual universalists, what they do is they say that in some ways, this frame will continue and people will get second chances. A lot of Catholic and Protestant thought is that no, this is this is the forum, and everyone who is in purgatory, let's say in the Catholic tradition, will eventually get to um, get to paradise. Um, there's no there's no leaving the inferno to go somewhere else. So, so all of so, but then Lewis also has this idea that people who all they do is complain eventually continue in their complaint until all that remains is the complaint. In other words, there's a progressive aspect to perdition that people even lose their their ontology in it and the ontology of complaint consumes them. And so Lewis isn't finally an eventual universalist. Lewis sort of stays in the middle and says, no, um, maybe there'll be a second chance for some, but it's probably still the case that the harvest of that second chance will be minimal because many sinners, um, for many, sin is a terminal condition. Now, is Lewis at the end an annihilationist? Uh, Hard to say. He doesn't really say that in his book. And if you read something like mere Christianity, there's nothing there to imagine that he is an annihilationist. So, but but again, with all of these questions, I think part of what is playing out in people's theologies are a lot of what builds our theologies below the conscious level. Uh, you've got temperament, you've got experience, you've got Formation in the Christian Church, in particular traditions, you've got all of these elements that go into making us who we are. So, yeah, I I think Lewis Lewis, in some ways, tries to, um, tries to to not offend his master George MacDonald, who was obviously the guide through the, um, through the far country that the ghosts on the bus travel to, while at the same time also keeping the door open to ideas that for some perdition is final and and again if a a lot of this is sort of extrapolation on what we see within this dispensation and within individual people's lives some people at some point turn in the end and repent and embrace, you know, like the thief on the cross. And the word in Christianity is um, there's hope, there's promise. Um, Surely, you you know, you'll be with me in paradise. So at the same time, there are others who are seen as finally lost. And what that looks like phenomenologically, well, Christians have been sort of all over the map on that too. Even someone as conservative as Tim Keller. I know some of you will debate his conservatism, but um, we'll we'll make the comment that, which I think is correct, that all of these images from scripture are evocative rather than descriptive. Um, They're evocative rather than phenomenological. They're symbolic in that they give a sense of what they're pointing to, but just as Gold is probably a really lousy paving media. Um, The kinds of conflicts that people have talked about with respect to hell, how can you have fire that is also darkness? Um, The point isn't dark fire, but if you say dark fire, you begin to evoke the imaginative horror that two discordant symbolic images that can't be put together are intended to evoke so
1: how do you call this chad the alcoholic i'm not sure if we've met but um
0: (laughs) uh,
1: long time listener first time caller uh (laughs) this uh this question has has been one that was um the, the, this this theological kind of wrestling has, has been one where it's like, because I was introduced to this idea of, I, I think, apocytosis or something. I can't say it, right, because whatever. But I've had where I felt like I'm being shredded to pieces wrestling with the validity of either side of this. Um, and I think, like, the idea of all shall be saved is grotesque and offensive. There's also something that I I have deep hope about that that is true because uh, I think of of my um, uh, 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 um, intimacy with resentment and pain and uh, and and like my inability to just. Change my mind about those things. So there's a deep hope, but it's, it is a strange thing. This is the one thing that's always made me feel like I'm being torn to pieces when I mm. get to trying to figure it out. And I, one thing I've discovered really at the end of the day is this question is um, perhaps very important for some, for me, this is like a, a way above my pay grade deal, yep. you know? And, and so I'm just grateful that I was introduced to these ideas, you know? And so, um, but yeah, anyways, great to, I love this old school, uh, Q and a, by the way, Good
0: talk we'll, we'll, we'll keep it going. We won't do it every week, but we'll keep it going. Um, and, and, but you're right. And, and I think that's the reason, again, if you look at these four views of eternal salvation and punishment, it's in this book. Um, Universal salvation, reverent agnosticism, annihilationism of the unrepentant, eternal punishment of the unrepentant. There's a reason that these four um, these four th- ideas have endured. And you know, you've got along, you know, you've got Origen Clement of Alexandria and Augustine a split on it. You've got um, Maximus the Confessor, John Stott, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Karl Barth, Van Balthasar, um, Richard John Newhouse. I mean, these aren't putzes. In in some ways, one way to think about this is that Chad, your consciousness Congress has representatives, bigger, (laughs) very articulate representatives spanned across the Christian conversation. And I think also your instinct that this is above your above your pay grade is right and true for all of us. We we can't help but come to our own um, ideas about these things. But finally, this is God's this is God's job to figure out what to how to finally resolve the question of rebellion against God in his creation and God will do what's right. And so when people come to me with either, well, I don't believe, I don't believe God would allow eternal conscious torment or, um, you know, people come to me with all sorts of ideas. Okay. I, I understand. I understand your ideas, but, what must you do to be saved and when we talk about to be saved you're really looking at the whole stack because you don't want just to be saved from let's say maybe alcoholism now you don't want to just be saved from hell in the future you want to be saved in the whole stack and so um the answer to that remains the same and again my answer to people is trust in jesus more than you trust yourself and begin there and um in the end god will do what is right and we we have to trust him on it and there, the reason that these four views remain is because there's a lot of reasons for it so yeah it's it's a good question it's part of the ongoing christian conversation and I, I personally I think it's unwise to dismiss hell because it's been so well attested. But as you said, Chad, to have the hope that God would find a way to to rescue um and is is also sort of an something that is buoyed by what we see revealed in Jesus Christ as the heart of God. So, but in terms of how all that works, we have, that's, that's God's business. So let's stick to our knitting. So that's my answer. All right, moving on. Now, the second question from Peter P is an excellent question. Dear Paul, among many of your videos, I came across one video in particular, which is about Feuerbach and his relation with Peterson. And I remember making that video and I remember some of it but I don't remember details about it. And I would have to go back and um, review the video because many of the ideas that I have in my videos are ideas that I'm having at the moment. And my videos are sort of like the scratch paper that I work through things. And just as if you take a lot of notes and have a lot of scratch paper and you're doodling and working through things, You don't remember all of the notes and all of the scratch paper that you made. And that's part of the reason that you wrote it down so that you can bring it back and recall. And so I haven't in anticipation of this made the recollection. And if you just saw the video, it's fresher in your mind than it is in my mind. If you could revisit the video, well, I'll have to take a look at this after we'll see if it sticks in my, um, in my mental to-do list, but there, there, you know, part of the point here is that, um, Part of the point here is that downstream from a lot of these thinkers, stuff gets into us. And um, after Marxism, you're never completely free of it. It's sort of these retcon ideas that are in history. It's very difficult to find someone who has not been in any way impacted by post-modernity. It's hard to find Christians that have not in any way imbibed of the spirit of small p Protestantism. It's just the way history works and our formation works. So, what story about Jesus? What story about Jesus haunts you the most? Why? Well, I you know to get back to the first question, um, there's no question Jesus frames himself as ultimate, which is part of Luther's trilemma. Muslims frame Muhammad not quite as ultimate. Buddhists frame the Buddha not as ultimate. Even Judaism doesn't necessarily frame Moses as ultimate. Part of the divinity of Christ in Christian doctrine is that Jesus is framed as ultimate. That's basically that's one way of understanding what saying Jesus is God means. That if your if the prophet or guru or sage or founder of your religion is not God, then they're not ultimate. And so Jesus manages And I think this is part of the reason for Tom Holland's observation about the Gospels. Jesus manages to both be more generous than we imagine responsible and more demanding than we dare to accept. The same the same guy who tells the woman caught in adultery, "Go and sin no more." The same guy who, um, we'll just use sexual sin for now because that's such a big topic of conversation these days. The same guy who let the sinful woman at the part, the house of the Pharisees, um, let down her hair and 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 wash his feet, is the same guy who preaches the. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is so demanding and so forgiving that we look at this because usually we either err on the side of forgiving or err on the side of demanding. And it's, you know, the whole winsome war, winsome versus antithesis, That's all a function of that. Jesus manages to hold the two sides together. And, and again, that's part of the reason that this question about hell continues to endure. Because in Jesus' demands, you get eternal punishment. In Jesus' invitation, you seem to get eternal opportunity. <laughs> and Jesus holds these things together. And we struggle with that. So that it's that dynamic that haunts me. Because, you know, so this morning I, you know, I released this video on the Christian Reformed Church and what's happening in it with respect to the the, the division that's coming. And there's no question that it's coming, in my opinion. Grand Rapids can't back down. Grimm's comment was just genius. Grand Rapids can't back down. The rest of the church can't back down. There's going to be a division, and if it isn't, it is. If it isn't the left sort of deciding to to take up their mission and pursue it, if they decide that they're going to sort of block the rest of the denomination, um, then you'll see a fracturing. Then you'll see a train wreck, and I, I don't want any of this to happen. But I fear the train wreck more than, you know, my admonition to the progressives and the CRC is. Okay, you've got a vision for inclusion. Stop wasting your time trying to argue with those who disagree with you and build your vision. See if it'll work. Because um, part of me would love to see it work. But another part of me says, I don't think it's going to work. I, I, If it would work, I suspect the main line would have done it. And there certainly aren't. And unless the really smart people in Grand Rapids East um, figure out how to do it differently from the main line, I think they'll probably wind up with the same results that we've seen in the main line. So what haunts me about Jesus is the fact that Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a wise teacher. That Jesus is the maker and judge of all creation. And so what encourages me is his love and generosity. And what terrifies me is his ability to demand. You know, the two groups that he's hard, I mean, he's the two groups that the groups that he's hardest on in the gospels are the strongly religious and his disciples. I mean when you read the gospels you very much get the sense that his disciples loved him but they're also a little afraid of him and and you all know that that dynamic you probably experienced it with your parents to a degree when you were small you love them I mean it's the it's the it's it's sort of the duality of the love and terror of worship you, you both love your desire your desire ramps up the fear that somehow you'll be rejected. and Lewis writes about this with the the you know the specific pleasure of the inferior. So that's that's I think and that's part of why Jesus always stays fresh and never stays dead. Anna B. This little corner seems to be obsessed with free speech, but how about taboo? Is there any, I think any use and space for taboos as part of the solution to the meaning crisis? Yes. (laughs) Taboos are evils that often we need not speak of and sometimes we dare not speak of some part of the meaning crisis is always a no and part of the meaning crisis if there's i forget which author this was was it was it was it philip rife uh, basically if there is no no in your system, your system will break down. And I think part of what has fueled the meaning crisis is the desire of the West to remove all no's. But so I've I've been reading, um, I think it's, it's titled wanting Luke Burgess's book. Luke did it outstanding conversation with Jonathan Peugeot recently and I've really been enjoying his book. He tells the story of Zappos, which is which was an internet startup selling shoes which just skyrocketed, got bought by Amazon, um and then the the company sort of devolved because basically the the founder of the company wanted to instill a culture of no no that this was just going to be about happiness. And the difficulty with um, this sort of wide open pursuit of happiness is that, in Luke Burgess's point of it was that you just sort of trigger all this mimetic rivalry among the employees and um, you, you basically just bred chaos. There's a reality that for People need order for there to be happiness and you can't have order without a no. Now you can have too much order and then it becomes tyrannical, but any viable long-term system will have taboo. It it just, it's, it's part of the realities of structure. Structures are impositions and limitations against our will. And so, you know, taboo is a part of that. Taboo tends to be something so, you know, the reality between the sacred and the prohibited is a really tricky one, but a very real one. And as we've talked about, I've talked about a couple of years ago, in some ways the frame problem is, deeply connected to the question of the sacred. In many ways, that which is sacred is your frame. And we know because of our limitations, you cannot productively know or engage with reality without a frame because reality is too large. Therefore, for any productive system, there must be the sacred. And if you have the sacred, there will be the taboo, the taboo, which is something that is both so sacred and profane, that the whole entire system, without a whole lot of effort, knows to avoid it. And you know, a lot of the traditional taboos, such as incest, incest is one of the deepest taboos. Um, it exists because the the violation the sexual violation of the family is so utterly destructive that nothing you know you cannot have a productive a productive system or society unless you observe some of these sa- these sacred things so now we haven't talked a lot about taboo but there are plenty of disagreeable people in this little corner of the internet. And there are many who are, um, yeah, there are plenty of disagreeable people and plenty of people who have, are fairly high in conscientiousness that there's still plenty of taboo around in this little corner of the internet. Van Gogh's ear, Paul, does the rule of chastity before marriage also encompass kissing and cuddling? What do you think? Um, do you kiss and cuddle your mom? Does that violate the rule of incest? We always um, struggle with boundaries and borders, and this is again part of this, the the reality between the the antithesis, which is binary, black and white, and the analog, which is degree. Um, I mean, you can go all the way, you can go all the way to one side and put someone in a burqa, which has just eye slats and you never touch them. But part of what that does is it, the, the, um, you also at the same time, in order to reduce questions of desire, prohibition creates desire. That's the whole dynamic of forbidden fruit. So, um, we cuddle and kiss children. We cuddle and kiss moms. We um, hug friends. Um, And in many cultures, there's a, there's a friendly kiss. Um, You know, there's the, um, there's the kiss of greeting that is talked about in the New Testament. Um, Cultures have lots of things around this. And so cultures work out questions of boundaries. um, Obviously for obvious reasons, Um, different, different areas of the body are more sacred and more covered than other areas of the body. So it's always a practical question for younger people who are trying to figure out where the boundary line should be. And I think as a society, which um, on one hand decided to sort of go all the way and demystify sex or de um yeah to to demystify sex or disenchant sex actually in louise perry's book if you read especially richard beck's take on her book um the other areas of the body well somebody needs to be muted thanks rick um The disenchantment of sex didn't work because the, the system just falls apart so if you disenchant sex you then no longer have a me too movement which was louise perry's point because if there is no functional difference between having sex with your administrative assistant and asking your administrative assistant to do the filing in other words if sex and filing are on the same level in terms of sacredness and holiness. Well, then why not have your administrative assistant have sex with you as part of um, his or her job description, just like the filing is involved? And she just, Louise Perry, just basically calls the bluff on this whole thing and says, it's a load of crap. Sex is different, men and women are different. You, you can't, on one hand, Create these enormous procedural and administrative um, rules and regulations to protect women from their male bosses, and at the same time deenchant disenchant sex. Because the entire machinery of Me Too screams to the world that men and women are different, women are vulnerable. Um, there should be protections you're, 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 you're enchanting sex all over the place in that practice. And then you could, you turn around and say, no, having sex with someone is no different from making them coffee in the morning. It just doesn't work. And people might not have the wherewithal to articulate that right away, but they feel it down in their axioms. And then... You hear their axioms expressed usually on social media and in anger and in disgust and in all the other ways we express our axioms. So, all right. This may be the wrong place. What's PVK's recommendations for mic and camera? This is a Blue Yeti. It works pretty well. A lot of those sure mics that are a lot more expensive that you see on almost all the podcasts. If the money, you can buy one of those. I haven't found a reason to spend the extra money and get more – to get something more than this blue yeti, it seems to work just fine. They're about a hundred bucks. The camera I'm using right now is a Sony a6400 with a Sigma 16 lens on it. Um, Sony, Sony and Canons have the best, most reliable face focusing, and so for this kind of work, for good focusing, Sony and Canons do the best. Um, this is a this is a uh, this lens is you know, gives you the depth of field that allows the background of me to be out of focus and my face in focus, which basically draws attention to my face, but gives a sense of suchness and moreness. Now, Sony has a new camera out that I think they've misnamed because they sort of put it in the ZX line. They have the ZX1, which is another Sony camera that I have, which I took to Europe because it's really small and portable and it still has the great focus. But this new camera, I think it's like the the, Z, the ZE10, something like that. You can find lots of videos about it. It's an upgrade to the A6400, basically for basically a little bit less money than the A6400. And so I, I would imagine that the A6400 will probably get discontinued at some point. Because the new camera has eyeball focusing and not just face focusing. So it does an even better job with focusing. So I recently dropped my ZX1. so I might uh, I might be at some point buying that new camera. So, but yeah, that's this will get you this camera. you can get a, a basically a dummy battery for it, so you can keep it plugged into AC power. Um, you can you can either run, a video line out the USB, or like I'm doing it, just use a um use a HDMI converter to USB, which gives good results. And yeah, it costs more money. You can use cheaper stuff. I also have a um Elgato face cam, which actually does quite well. It's a lot cheaper. But if you're if this is something you're going to be using every day, this camera is probably the most used piece of equipment at church because I use it every day for my videos. I use it for my Zoom calls. On Sunday, I take it out of my office and we put it on the cart and we use it for Sunday services. The camera's a workhorse, it does a great job. And, um, you know, a few hundred dollars more. If you've got something that you use for hours every day, and it doesn't work well, and it's annoying, and it's sort of mission critical to what you're doing. It makes a little bit of sense to spend a few extra hundred dollars. If it's just kind of a little hobby, you can get by on spending a lot less. So the the camera will cost maybe eight hundred dollars, and the lens will cost a f, you know few hundred dollars more. But I bought this a few years ago, and I haven't regretted the purchases. So, all right, Nathaniel which things or topics do you find yourself retconning the most oh boy you know this whole dynamic of what do i mean by retconning it's it's basically it's basically the idea of we don't even have great metaphors for it it's basically the it's basically the idea that once you're no longer a virgin you're no longer a virgin and there are ideas out there in the world that are so powerful once you see them you can't unsee them i was i was i've been watching this this show on hulu rammy i've given some of the warnings about it before it's uh, it's not for the squeamish. But it, I find the show fascinating because it's a very honest look at the life of a Muslim family in North Jersey as they're dealing with all of the dislocations of contemporary life that they are dealing with with respect to immigration. And there's this one episode where Rami basically talks about the fact that he was happy before he had sex, you know? Um, and it's basically innocence. And and so sex for Rami is obviously a real crisis because he's a young man who on one hand wants to live an upright, pure Muslim life. And on the other hand, just, you know, can't or doesn't really want to get a handle on his sex life. You know, he, at this, at this one episode, he's you know, first he decides he's just going to date Muslim girls and that doesn't work out well. And then he meets this daughter of a conservative Jewish, granddaughter of a conservative Jewish diamond dealer. And, um, you know, he's, he's about to, he's with this girl and he's about to have sex with her. And basically his cell phone goes off because that's the, that's the warning that ramadan is happening and so he tells his his jewish girlfriend oh i can't have sex with you right now because ramadan is starting and she's like oh i didn't know you were that muslim oh that's really cool and you get this weird dynamic in our culture where you know somehow advocating chastity is oppressive but practicing chastity is aspirational this is a weird dynamic we've got going on in our culture well you you just there are things that you see that you don't unsee and and that goes with you know i think for some people and, and this is sort of what a lot of the the culture war over LGBTQ stuff has. Um, People who had never met um, someone, let's say never, never had seen a gay marriage that seemed to be working in some way. They meet a nice gay couple who are married and they seem to love each other and everything's cool. And they're like, huh, well, maybe gay marriage isn't so bad. Bang, they're sort of retconned. Um, And then suddenly you see this whole struggle, and people are arguing about the Bible, but a lot of what's functioning is, oh, I know that couple over there, and they seem sane and happy, and what's so bad about gay marriage? Um, Bang, and the world changes. We have those kinds, or maybe you were taught that um, a particular religious or ethnic group is horrible and evil, and then you meet someone from it, and you realize, they don't seem so horrible and evil, they seem a lot like me. And suddenly it's changed. You know, you, you realize that the Catholics don't eat babies, and, um, or maybe the, the, the Calvinists aren't as quite as predestinarian as everybody said they were. Um, I haven't answered your question. I think Tom Holland's thesis, in some ways, you know, really dug deep into me. And partly because I had suspected a lot of truth of it and he just sort of brought it to the surface. You know, Jordan Peterson did that with a lot of things, with a lot of people too. So, and then figuring out the implications of that, you know, it, it was always sort of easy to say secular versus Christian. And then I learn and figure out that basically, wait a minute, secular is sort of a watered-down version of Christian. And if you if the secular goes, we sort of step back 700 years and all we're having are sort of presuppositional wars, but not really because so many of the ideas that have come down the stream are built into all of us. So I'm the, right now, the idea of retconning and, and the dynamic of that is can be deeply troubling but also something I can't quite escape. And that's perhaps the nature of what I'm talking about with these type of powerful retconning ideas. Uh, Let's see, how are we doing on time? 11-11. I am a Reformed Protestant, as you are. And I, was all, and I was curious if hearing Peugeot over the years has impacted your views of ritual liturgy and architecture in a way that scales fractally through the whole church body. And as a pastor, if these insights have actually made changes to the service held at your church to be more reflective of any of these patterns. This is a great question. Do I know Hebrew? I knew it a lot better when I was in seminary, I'll tell you that. Um so I'd have to say no to knowing Hebrew, especially hanging around with all these, um, all, the, all my Jewish friends who can just recite um, mm-hmm. recite from the Old Testament verbatim. Yeah, I don't know it like they know it. Your first question is a great one: understanding, admiring, learning from enjoying befriending Jonathan Peugeot didn't really make me want to plaster the inside of my church with icons. It made me understand them a lot better. What it did was open my eyes to the power of the symbolism that is built into my own tradition. I don't, I have a better appreciation for the psychotechnology of praise and worship music, its upsides and downsides. A lot of the critique of iconography I had before, I still maintain. I'm just a little less dogmatic about it because my eyes are opened to the iconography that are built that is built into Spartan low church Protestantism. And I have my eyes are open to its icons and saints and liturgies and practices. So, in some ways, Jamie Smith sort of put me on this road before I found Peugeot. I, you know, I was talking to someone about this um, yesterday. I have no desire to join the Orthodox Church. I'm fascinated by what I see them do. I'm not moved by it. I still like my tradition. I'm, I'm probably not as judgmental about other traditions i'm not as spooked by them i understand them better i understand the statuary i understand the iconography and i appreciate it but it also helped me understand and appreciate the iconoclastic traditions as well there's this great line in luke burgess's book which basically says that mimetic rivalry Makes basically makes the the people who are engaging in it duplicate each other, and and I watch this with the woke wars. The anti wokesters very quickly become like the wokesters. You can't engage in you can't engage in these mimetic rivalries and not sort of be locked into the same thing. And I think this is this is the power of having your eyes open to a lot of those conflict dynamics, and to I think actually to actually um, do better with people. Instead of just, you know, for example, let's talk about the, um, there will be plenty of people who see, so I have probably one of the largest Twitter followings in the Christian Reformed Church. Kristen Kobes-Dumay and Jamie Smith probably have larger, but I have one of the biggest, if not the largest, I certainly have the largest YouTube following of any clergy in the Christian Reformed Church, I believe. And so making a video about what's going on politically in the Krishna Forum Church right now, that a lot of people who are on both sides of that will jump into that video. And I know because I get emails from them. Um, some people are really angry with me for not basically using my YouTube channel to advocate for LGBT plus inclusion in the Krishna Reform Church. Some people are probably on the other side, just more annoyed that I don't seem to be, um, advocating for the other side in the fight. And people will look at what I did and they'll say, you're not really taking a side in the fight. And I'm saying, no, I, there's plenty of people taking sides in the fight, but that fight is not the only dynamic. And in fact, I think A lot of the other things that have been happening in the Christian Reformed Church have led to the way this fight is going to play out and the way this fight is going to end more than the arguments about the fight. That's part of conflict. And I lost my thing here. I'm not going to condemn the Catholics for their statuary when you can go to Geneva and see the histories of the Reformation, all in, the Reformers all in statues in Geneva. You know, when, when Richard Rowland makes the point that now when he looks back at his Baptist church, if you go to I don't know if they still have them up at Calvin Seminary, but you had pictures of all the old professors that were at Calvin Seminary. Used to spook out the security guards who had to walk through there at night because he had all these hoary eyes with gray beards looking at them. Um, You go to any Christian Reformed church into the council room or many Christian Reformed churches in the council room and you see portraits of all the former pastors there. We practice these... We have these practices, but we just embed them differently. And so when you have spare church traditions, they do other things with them, but the the practices are still there. So I I I, you know, I can go into a an Orthodox church, and now that I've learned from Peugeot, I can notice the right hand and the left hand, and I'm I'm better in tune with the with the language of um of iconography and I'm fascinated by how imagistic languages arise and how that whole thing works. I was fascinated by Jonathan's introduction to iconography. I was fascinated by that, but it doesn't make me want to put images up at Livingstones. stones. It's a, it's a different tradition. And they both have their place. So, yeah, none none of what I've done has made me, you know, I've been on this journey for the last five years. And sometimes I worry about journeys because journeys can be transformative. And there are some ways I don't want to change. And there are ways in which I think I should not change. And, but when I think about the main convictions of my faith, including my Reformed faith, I think that everything I've learned and the new relationships that I've made have for the most part strengthened all of that. So I know that there are people that think that, you know, all this openness and all this conversation, if you only lock down people and keep them in a, Keep them in their bubble, then you can, well, yeah. But there's a fragility that there's a fragility that goes on in that greenhouse too. So I'd I'd rather um, go on the adventure, and um, and do so prayerfully, and trust that through this adventure, Jesus is going to make me more like Himself. And I don't think I will be less reformed or less Christian, but maybe I'll have a better understanding of the rest of the world too. So hope that answers your question. David Walker, is our current cultural laxness on death due to thousands of years of misinformation about Christianity, the hillbilly heaven, wings and the halos of the clouds for everything or more because of Christianity's success? I don't know that we have a laxness on death. So on one, it just gets strange because on one hand you can have like the Canadian um, made system where not only have doctor assisted suicide, but you have government doctors assisting with suicide. <laughs> it just, it just blew my mind when I I read some of this stuff because again, I quite regularly bring people into the psych hospital and, the way to get into the psych hospital is to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a danger to myself or others. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm suicidal. And to have them come in and say, okay, we can help you with that by helping you commit, you know, the whole purpose of the psych hospital here is to keep you from killing yourself. So I I would say that I don't think we have a laxness on death. I think we have a lot of things that we haven't thought through with respect to death on one hand we have a culture that i mean the the safetyism is all about avoiding death on the other hand this culture of death that you get with abortion and euthanasia and um, all of this and war it's just the, the classic inconsistencies of humanity do you have any personal stories that you could share where your intentions were good but harm might have been done in your attempts to be of love and service. <laughs> I have an easy one. It was in the Dominican Republic, um it was tradition in our zone, at least they told me it was. I they might have fooled me completely that. Every year we'd have a Christmas party at the um at the at the sort of uh class that we were giving all the pastors and preachers and that the missionary would buy the meat because meat was expensive and you know the missionary would buy the meat and all every t- everywhere we went for church or classes or anything we'd have a meal it would be chicken and rice and beans it would often be delicious sometimes it would be fish and rice and beans but it would always be chicken and rice and beans chicken and rice and beans chicken and rice and beans and so i said one year i said hey why don't we do something different you know why don't we instead of doing chicken rice and beans and i'm going to pay for the chicken Why don't we do a roast pig? Wouldn't that be fun? Because then I mean a roast pig is fun. You have a lot of people and you have the pig and they usually don't get a chance to eat pork and yada yada yada. That'll that'll make the party better. So and they didn't want to say no to the missionary, even though I'm this you know 20 28-year-old kid. So okay, we'll do the pig. So we do the pig couple of weeks later we're having the 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 mesa meeting the board meeting basically and um, motion comes out of the blue i didn't see it coming vote to go back to chicken for the christmas party <laughs> i was like why i thought the pig was a great idea No, we we all ate a whole bunch of that pork and we all got sick they weren't used to eating pork they weren't used to eating that much meat got to go back to the chicken all right we'll go back to the chicken i thought it was a way to that's that's an easy story to tell. I have dozens of other stories in my life of when I thought I was doing a really good thing when it just whipped around and I found that instead of blessing people, I was hurting people. And I won't tell you those stories because on one hand, they're too painful. On the other hand, they expose too much of other people's lives and what was going on in their lives. So, Chad, it happens all the time. As Gandalf says to Frodo, even the wise can't see all ends. And a, a deep part of that story, and you know, especially told via the movie, but also in the book, is we don't know a lot. We think we know. And and this is this is something, this is the humility that we should have with our fights. We're we're just little we're just small creatures who see from perspectives and only know so much. And we have to have convictions because you can't live without them. But sometimes our convictions are mostly right in the little bit of ways that they're not right. They wind up hurting people. This is, this is the, this is the nature of our world. And also how do you keep a level head in such public arena? Well, there are plenty of times and you can find them on my videos where I haven't. I think um, part of the reason humility is important is because you need to be able to admit when you're wrong and confess that you're wrong, and you need to remember those moments when you're all full of yourself. So I was, again, talking to someone yesterday, and he knows who this is, about the, the antithesis and the winsome, okay? It's very easy to get triggered and if you're articulate and verbal and if you have a platform, go off and sort of smash somebody. And, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna beat up on the Protestants, or we're gonna beat up on the Orthodox, or we're gonna beat up on the Catholics, or we're gonna beat up on the atheists, or we're gonna beat up on the Republicans or the Democrats or the abortionists or the uh, or Canada, or you know, we we get triggered and someone kicked us on our axioms and we kick back and there's a huge appetite for that on youtube and the internet because we love seeing you know we we're little and we got kicked and we didn't have any voice to kick back and so then jordan peterson or joe rogan or president trump or president biden kicks back for you and we cheer yeah sometimes that kicking back is just the fact that hurt people hurt people. And and that isn't to say that there aren't times and places for absolute screeds, that there aren't times and places to denounce evil. But in terms of my own self figuring out when I'm actually denouncing evil and when I've just been kicked and triggered and decided I'm going to hit back, I might not be too good at telling the difference. And sometimes it might be both. But a lot of times, it's just me being a small person and wanting to get back and be an ankle biter because that's all the status I have. I can't actually knock down my opponent, so I'm just going to bite their ankle. or I'm just going to be a troll or a jerk because I'm hurt and I'm angry and I'm going to hit back. You got to watch that in yourself. I don't mean that you, Chad, because, Chad, you're – you're about as honest and transparent and a delightful cat as we have in this little corner, and that's why, that's why you're so loved. And and part of what we're doing, you know, I too, um, I had issues with with Jacob and Father DeYoung's little uh, second meeting there, and you um, know, I, I talked about that with Jacob a little bit yesterday on his live stream. I think part of the value we give to the world is showing how it's it's easy to be nice and play nice when everything is good, but figuring out how to talk to one another when we've been hurt or when we're scared, that's really hard. And so doing that in public I remember reading, we've talked about John Gottman a little bit in the Marriage Crisis book, but uh, in the Marriage Crisis videos, but in his books, yeah, I've read plenty of marriage books. One of the keys, the, the key to a good marriage and not just marriage, but a good relationship, a key to a good marriage or relationship is not that you don't fight. It's awfully nice to have relationships in which you don't fight. Yes, because fighting, fighting is hard on us. Conflict is hard on us because it, you know our, our systems ramp up and, and some people by virtue of really horrible upbringing or temperament or whatever, some people are always angry and always fighting and um, pity those people and maybe steer clear of them as much as you can. But the key to a, mar- a good marriage is actually being able to have reparative conversations one of the when i was in the premarital counseling done for me by my pastor dave bielen at madison square he had us read water walter wangerin who's a lutheran um, you know for me in my house i believe that's the title of the book i don't know if i, I probably have a copy of it somewhere the book the book was what, 150 200 pages or something but it could be summarized very easily if you want to stay married, don't leave and learn to forgive. It's devastating advice because when you get hurt in a relationship, what you want to do is leave. Yeah, you want to leave. I get it. You're hurting. You want to get away from the source of your hurt. Also, you begin to realize that some of that source of the hurt is inside you and you can't get away from it. So maybe you have to stay, Stop the fight and walk away from it a little bit. Maybe, maybe you have to, um, maybe you have to go sleep on the couch or turn off the internet or take down all of your videos or something like that. Maybe you have to take a step back. Um, (laughs) The Rick, the Rick, uh, the Rick (laughs) exercise plan is back. Thank you um uh, <laughs> taco fund but if you don't leave the relationship and if you, you you have you have the reparative conversation and if you learn to forgive that's that's what marriage is made of because we we do wrong things we say bad things we hurt each other. And learning to, learning to heal, learning to forgive, that's basic. So um, there's nothing new here, Chad. It's all the same stuff that, that we all need to learn. Be humble, learn to forgive, learn to love. Don't lose yourself either. Stick to your guns. That's okay. It's okay to have an idea. It's also okay to revise an idea. So... Oh, boy. Let's see. Questions from today. Does Jordan Peterson have value even if he can't change people's minds? I'm sure he has value. I recently witnessed a discussion on a Facebook group primarily focused on movies where he was brought up, and the conversation quickly devolved around how terrible he is. Yes, that's right. Um <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Lance, for the, um, for the parking lot support. Uh, we we had, we had someone, we had someone from this little corner um, offer, because we, we pretty much burned through our first $10,000 of matching funds. So someone from this little corner offered another $10,000 on another um, on the next $10,000 of gifts that come in from the internet for the, uh, for the parking lot, and um, yeah, it's it's coming together. I hope we don't have to spend too much on the roof, but uh, we'll um, we'll see how that goes. I real I realize controversy can be a form of currency online, yes. But I do wonder if we maybe if if he maybe repels as many as he attracts. Yes. P.S. Not available for coming on voice chat. Okay. Thanks, Michigan man, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. And this, so there was that moment. I did a video when Rebel Wisdom, when when David Fuller kind of came out with his critiques of Jordan Peterson, and Michaela got offended, and you know that whole spat. And and the same with um, oh, um, oh, I can't remember his name. His his he was in the Exodus series too. Um, the author, the writer. The, the 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 Democrat. Basically same video he did with Peugeot. It'll bubble up in a few minutes. Same video he did with Peugeot and Peterson where they talked about that. And and this is Herwitz. part of this is what's that? Hurwitz, yeah, right. Hurwitz, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you, Richard. So the difficulty with Peterson, this is a resolution problem partly. Peterson is known for being obstinate and and right now the whole controversy with the um the Canadian licensing psychological licensing board classic example and I I loved the first line of that Washington Post piece where you know you would think people by now would have known that if you really want to get somewhere with Jordan Peterson don't tell him what to say I mean, it's, We haven't learned that from C-16. After, you know, part of what happened in that first wave is that the Blue Church antibodies very quickly recognized that Jordan Peterson was a rising threat to their hegemony and they framed him. This is classic political maneuvering. If you're in a presidential campaign, frame your adversary in a low resolution reactive way donald trump was the master of this um you know what he did to his first as republican opponents for the 2016 nomination and then what he did to hillary clinton trump is as a trump as a salesman is a master at very deep um very deep framing of people. And he does it, you know, Marco Rubio, little Marco. I mean, he he does that, you know, lying Hillary Clinton. I mean, he does that so well, just bang, 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 bang. And that's so effective. And so Peterson, in many ways, that was done to, to Peterson. Now, myself, would I... Um, Part of Peterson's power was that he was contra-narrative and he was blunt and he was very clever and effective and skillful in his takedowns. I mean, in many ways, what happened at in Kathy Newman was peak Peterson. But sometimes, and, and he admits this, he admits it on the Hurwitz conversation. He, and Twitter for him is a weakness. <laughs> He, you know, and, and he he he's walked through. I mean, Peterson is so darn transparent. He really is in many ways. Um, and he, he admits that, you know, it's the end of the day. He's been talking forever. He keeps a work schedule that would kill a horse. It's at the end of the day, he's feeling tired and grumpy, and it's just easy. And those quietest hours of the day, maybe his wife has already gone to bed. You pull out your phone, and there's Twitter and you've got 2 to 3 million followers and here's all these issues you're you're angry about i mean just look at my little visit video i did with cosmic skeptic you know you get triggered and bang and if you're really articulate and sharp with your words and really smart boy you can and the internet just loves it now As Greg Erwitz, who remains his friend, and I think Erwitz is right, Peterson is way more than that. He really is. And and that's why when I look at this licensing thing, I think, yeah, if all you know of Jordan Peterson is what you see of him on Twitter, I can understand why you might think of him that way. But if you actually listen to enough of him, listen to his conversations, he's way deeper than that. Now, if, if he were in my church and I were his pastor, I would, in fact, admonish him and say, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your Twitter account, Jordan, but you yourself have said on many occasions, sometimes you just, you just go off and do these things. And sometimes it's genius, but sometimes it bites you in the butt. I think Hurwitz was right. Um, you know, they're really, and I see this often on Twitter, some t- people are pointing out hugely important issues, but is Twitter really the place where you can, what, what can you actually accomplish on Twitter? Because if all you're doing is sort of motivating and mobilizing the moocs, uh, that's you're, you're, you can't both complain about mob action on the left and just decide you're going to facilitate mob action on the right. That's not the way to go about it. And so I'm you know, i really sympathetic to Hurwitz and David Fuller that Peterson could be more effective. And I think he has been. I think there was a period there when he first started with Daily Wire where a bunch of things were popping off. I think he's so much better in long form when you when you get a chance to when he gets a chance to sit down and talk and and unfortunately in wave 1 he was he had the opportunity to do a lot more you know things like the Kathy Newman interview where he was absolutely masterful because of his illness you know he didn't handle the um the Žižek debate that didn't really go as well as it could have it didn't go as poorly as it could have either um i think i think long form i think long form i think i think long form is really good with jordan because then all of the nuance that is in him can come out and twitter i i think it just i think he i think he gets sucked in by his demons so yeah but at the same time Um, I don't think I, 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 am I'm not a year ago. I might've had more doubts about this, but what I've seen, the work that I've seen him do lately, I think he's doing some great work out there. And I think he's able to make a contribution. It's just a lot more difficult that he's sort of been pigeonholed as something that he really isn't. And Hurwood sees that, um, and I see it too. I've watched plenty of him that. There's a lot more to him, but, but we're all, we're all these bundles of complexity and we're all judging each other through our own filters. I don't have 6 million YouTube subscribers. Jordan Peterson is way better at a whole bunch of things than I am. I don't know if I want to have 6 million YouTube subscribers. I So who who am I to judge him? God is our judge. Someday Jesus will sit down with Jordan and have a conversation. <laughs> and if there's anybody that you should both be really wanting to have a conversation and terrified to have a conversation with it's Jesus. (laughs) Oh yeah. I, I, I still, I still really appreciate Jordan. Uh, He, he, he makes me laugh. I enjoy him. Um, He could frustrate me sometimes, but you know, you've seen all that if you've watched my videos. I'm, that's, that's just how I feel about him. I think, I think, I think he's, I think he's made and continues to make really important contributions in a lot of areas. I just do. And people that want to write him off because of their political reasons, you know, I, I watch people across the political aisle, you know, there, there there's a lot I don't like about Donald Trump, but, there's other things that I see him do that I think, wow, that's masterful. That's masterful. Um, I, I don't think he's the best guy to run a government. I don't think, frankly, he has a lot of interest in running a government. I think he likes doing what he does. I, I like a lot about, um, you know, I really like uh, Scott Adams. Um, I, I There's a lot that's that I don't trust about him, but he, he does have insights and I enjoy watching him in in amounts. I'd love to have a conversation with Scott Adams. Um, I, I'm a very open person and I you know I love Nate Heil, and I love Jacob and those two aren't going to get along anytime soon. <laughs> I love Anselman and I love Jacob and I love Nate and those three aren't going to get along anytime soon. And I'm glad they're all in the world. And, you know, just look at it, you know, I, you know, Mark and, and Manuel. And I mean, I love all you guys in this little corner every now and then you'll tweak me and annoy me, but, uh, no, you've all got your, you've all adding who you are and what you do. So, and Jordan, Jordan's there too. Pastor Paul, would you you remind me why wokeism isn't the inevitable inheritor of Christianity? It's because wokeism is way too incoherent. You can't both say, um, let women speak and not know what a woman is. Wokeism, you can't both say everything is a social construct, therefore um, we can't deconstruct race, gender, and all this other stuff. It's just, it's just too incoherent. It's, it's shallow and it's already breaking down. It's, it's not going to last. It doesn't mean that there isn't damage that it's going to do, but it's, it's not the beast. It's, it's a, it's, it's an example of the fact that almost everything that we develop and instantiate, we push to the limit and it overreaches. And, you know, it's the same with communism, you know, communism couldn't last. It overreached there's, there's too much structure built into reality. So wokeism, you know, you've already seen that Disney, you know, there's a reason to, if you go woke, you'll go broke. Um, you can't, you can't be a mother and, and think that all boys are rapists. You can't do it. So it's it's not the it's it's a it's a threat for now, but it's it's not going to be an enduring threat. And and these things keep coming back in other forms, but it's not. I'm not going to spend my life just dealing with wokeism because it won't be around that long. Wokeism is the glorified body and death of the resurrection. Popes often take a name for a specific reason as a signal of where they want their pontificate to go. In your opinion, what should, what name should the next Pope take and why? I have no idea. I have no idea at all. Um, You know, I I make a little video on the inside misery of the Christian Reformed Church, and most of you will sort of watch it through the lenses of whatever this broader fight about LGBTQ stuff is. the roman catholic church is massive and and for there and therefore is deeply political and i don't have any clue you know part of the reason why this little corner is so fun is i get to learn from father eric and kale about the catholics i get to learn from from jacob and hezi about the jews and we don't really have a lot of muslim contingents in this little corner but I, y'all have your own politics, and I can't begin to understand them. I just sort of listen and watch with fascination. Paul Sacramento. Paul, do you think some people on earth are irredeemably evil? If not, what does Christ mean when he talks tells us to love our enemies? Uh, I think I don't think the irredeemability of someone as an enemy are is basically the same thing. Um, sometimes your biggest enemies are the people closest to you. Maybe they're your parents. Maybe they're your, they're your spouse. Maybe they're your kids. Maybe they're your coworkers. They're friends and enemies together. That's part of the genius of this whole idea of mimetic rivalry, that it's often the people closest to you that, that you're actually. It's, there's a reason. There's a reason if a woman winds up dead, the husband or the boyfriend is suspect number one. It's, that's how we are. Um, irredeemably evil, possibly, but number one, we can't be the judge of that. I think we have to go through this world to a degree believing that even the worst among us can be redeemed. Now, in all likelihood, many of the worst among us won't be won't be transformed or changed in this world, and they'll go to the grave with their sin and misery that we see in them. Yeah, but, um, you know, if Jesus had looked over to the other thief on the cross and said, no, you're here for a reason, you know, burn in hell. No, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we always hold out hope. Daniel R. Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Where does that leave a non-believer who is merciful is a merciful person to others? I think that's the grace of God working through them in their mercy. C.S. Lewis makes this point in mere Christianity. Quotes like this that raise the universalist hairs. (laughs) I don't have that many hairs left on my arm in angst. I'm not really a universalist, but things like this make me raise my hands in confusion. And that's right. And there are lots of passages in the Bible that have universalist inklings. And that's again, why those four categories that I read earlier still remain in the Christian conversation. And I don't think they're going away. Um, I don't think you're going to get rid of the idea of eternal punishment. And I don't think you're going to get rid of the idea of a universal salvation. And then the other places in the middle are sort of attempts to square that. Those ideas persist. And, um, We'll know someday because we'll see what God does. Hey, Paul, do you think the spirit of Socrates and the spirit of Jesus are in perfect harmony? No. Would there be conflicts between these spirits if we internalize and prioritize them both? Sure. I don't worship Socrates as Lord. That doesn't mean I can't learn from him. I don't worship any other human being as Lord. That doesn't mean I can't learn from them. I didn't worship my father as Lord. That didn't mean that I didn't learn tremendous things from him. But the spirit of Socrates and the spirit of Jesus won't be the same. They'll just be different. The spirit of Jesus and the spirit of Augustine aren't the same. The spirit of Jesus and the spirit of Maximus the Confessor aren't the same. It's it's basically a categorical question. Um, But that doesn't mean that We can't learn a lot from Socrates and that there isn't virtue and value there. And I'm curious how much pagan wisdom a person can participate in and internalize but still remain a Christian. Well, you know, Peugeot comments on this. I forget what video it was. It wasn't the recent Verveke video. But, I mean, in a lot of ways, church fathers went through a lot of this. And and we we tend to sort of limit the conflicts to let's say philosophical or religious planes. But um, you know, can you learn a lot about physics from Newton? Yes. Is that in conflict with Christ? You might say, well, non-overlapping non-overlapping magisteria. Really? Mm. So there's. There's lots of overlapping magisteria, but overlap again is sort of like this. So you know, ideally, all truth is God's truth. Yep, uh, I can't see all truth because I'm small. So I, there's anxiety about that. You know, does does Marx not say true things? Does Marx not have insight? Um, these these are all the things we work through with, with others. Uh, I'm not going to work on that Hebrew right now. It takes too much brain power. I think the biggest struggle I have with learning about stuff from John Verveke and other academic material is that for regular people, there's a big gap. Yep. Yep. That's exactly it. So no one else I, I, um, so no one else I show it is interested or cares. Yep. It seems to, like most people, don't think about meaning that much and don't need it. Uh, I myself have watched hundreds of hours and still don't feel like it's helped very much. Yeah, and so probably it's not something that's terribly fruitful for you. And I'd say just ignore it. <laughs> um, I feel I, there sometimes I watch videos that I think, yeah, you know, if I spent a lot of time reading and devoting myself to really understanding what this person says, I could really get this, but I don't have that time. And Verveke, in fact, talks about this. Which video conversation was that? You know, it's basically the scalability issue that, that John has really taken to heart. That, um, you know, who who asked him that? I don't remember, but someone basically, it was, Wal- it was Grim Grizz. It was Grim Grizz, the Walmart question. And John's answer was quite clear. People at Walmart should go to church. (laughs) Basically, it's not exactly what he said, but go go to the church that fits you. Um, You know, I made a video a while ago how you know how how often I find unsophisticated Christians being better Christians than I am. They they don't know anything about Socrates or Plato or the meaning crisis or or philosophy or politics or they don't know anything about any of this stuff. You know what they are good at sometimes? Loving their neighbor as themselves. They are better Christians than I am. That's their lot. They have their own struggles. Um, Sometimes they can get caught by a trap that I see coming a mile away because I've got some of this knowledge about history and philosophy and theology and all those things. And so I can sort of duck that trap. But there are other traps I fall into that they don't. So that's, we, we tend to like to imagine, and this is part of the deception of our current world. We tend to like to imagine this, this hierarchy of knowledge that well if you know a lot if you if you're very well read if you're very well educated and you know if you got a degree from the right university you got all this stuff yada 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 yeah you might still be a really lousy christian knowledge puffs up love builds up i'll take a church full of people who know how to love any day before I take a church over people who are just full of thinky-talkiness. That doesn't mean I don't love thinky-talkiness. I got a whole channel about it. I love thinky-talky. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Can't live without it. That's just me. But if you ask me about a church, I want to be around saints who know how to love. And To actually spend the time in the thinky-talky, it can be a way to love those others who, like me, you know, questions of philosophy and retconning keep them up at night. So for them, I'll do the thinky-talky stuff with you. But the goal of this is that you learn to love because you can't thinky-talky your way into impressing a baby that baby knows love. Same with your dog. Same with your neighbor. Same with the college professor. You know, it's. Um, I haven't done anything with it. With it, but I want to. I haven't even watched it. But the the Beckett Cook Rosario Butter Rosaria Butterfield conversation on Beckett Cook's channel. I mean, Rosaria Butterfield story is just an amazing story. She was, you know, lesbian living in a relationship. Um, teaching, I think, at Syracuse, teaching English Lit. She was going to do some writing on, like, these dread Christian nationalists, you know, these conservative Christians. And so she thought, well, I should actually do some primary research. And so she went out and met a pastor, and her relationship with that pastor brought her to the point of becoming a very conservative, reformed Christian woman who married a man and has children with him. <laughs> That's the power of love. And it doesn't mean there are, that there aren't arguments about it that go on one way or another. That's the power of love. That's love is greater. The greatest of these is love. You thinky-talky all over the place. You know, that's, that's the point of 1 Corinthians 13. So it doesn't mean that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all of this stuff isn't important. It is important. It's important because we love. But, as, and I think, you know, as John said in his video with, with Jonathan, you know, Plato understood that all of what they were doing was to make people better people that's all about love so ethan okay no more questions for today we're out of time hopefully next month we'll do it probably i have to figure out a way i should just i'm just i'm such a i'm such a. you know jacob wants to hire me i'm a crappy person to lead these things um you know i don't if you think I'm a, a person to run an organization, just look at the crap job I've done in my church. I'm, I'm a terrible <laughs> I'm a terrible leader of an organization. Please don't ask me to do that. Um, will there be a point where we will need to distance ourselves from this new movement of Neoplatonism? I don't know. I by I am by no means an expert on Neoplatonism. I'm really looking forward to John's new project. I suspect, however, it's sort of like the whole Stoicism conversation. And Peugeot, I thought, nailed that when Peugeot said, Yeah, you know what? You know why? You know why the Stoics disappeared? They became Christians. You know why Neoplatonism disappeared? They became Christians. Now, maybe some of them became Muslims. I don't know. Maybe some of them went over to Buddhism. I don't know. But there's a reason that these big religions endure. It's because they they work. They scale. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't really helpful and important to step back and say, wow, Neoplatonism, let's look at that. Scott, that's exactly what scholars do. You can go to, you can watch, um, what's the name of the dude from Wheaton who has, they videotaped all of his lectures and you can find him on the Wheaton website. They're really good philosophical lectures and he's he's fun to watch. He's a great teacher. And, you know, I've reposted his stuff on Neoplatonism. Um, Augustine was deeply, you know, he was a Manichaean and then he was a Neoplaton. Um, he was into Neoplatonism, and in many ways, it's difficult to understand Augustine without understanding Neoplatonism. And I was talking to—I'll drop a name here. I was talking to Al Walters, who, if you're in the Christian Reform community, is a big name. Um, He's—I've wanted to get him on the channel, but he says no, he's—you know—he's got Parkinson's, and he'd rather not be on video. And it's totally cool. Um, wrote a really important book uh, that I can't remember right now. In our little. Tradition, Al Walters, great scholar. Um, you know, did a lot of in-depth study on Neoplatonism. It's incredibly important philosophical tradition. And to have John Vervake say, I want to revive the fruits of this. That's what academics and scholars do. Creation regained. Yep, yep, there it is. Um, did Augustine ever? I can't read the comments while I do this because I get distracted. Um Oh gosh, that's a that's a that's a subtle question. Did Gustin ever reject Manichaeism? If you read Manichaeus thought, it's pretty weird. So John is doing what scholars have done all along, and and it very much fits into John's story. And and I understand, I mean, now part if John were doing this within the walls of a university none of us would know about it. and None of us would care about it. John is, um, you know, I I got a chance to spend a little bit of time with John when we were in Thunder Bay and, um, you know, John's a lovely, lovely man. He really is. And, you know, I, I began to get senses of that as, you know, we began to meet online and have conversations and to get to know each other better. And then getting a chance to know each other a little bit better at Thunder Bay. A lovely, lovely man who really cares about people well. Um, you know, he's he he is on a mission to help people in the ways that he feels himself ready and equipped to do so. This this project is coming from a good place now. He he fully expects, and you know, and he said it to Jonathan Peugeot, and he said it to me that he'll get pushback from us on this, but He also understands that that's part of the process and he'll push back on us. And, you know, this is, if if there's something worth building in this little corner, it's exactly that kind of space where we can build the relational platform by which we can have productive, helpful conversations across boundary lines that have tripped us up in the past. If you had asked me 10 years ago if I would be befriending an icon carver and a cognitive scientist from the University of Toronto, I, 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 you know, I sure, of course I can be their friend, but would I be having substantive conversations on the internet about these kinds of important things? No idea, but here we are. And so you know that's part of and, and in order to do that i think what part of what we've established is a degree of trust so that we can we can bring our disagreements together and work on them and that's the whole idea of dialogos and to have a space that can hold people with deeply conservative christian ideas along with academics of deeply cutting-edge scientific ideas, boy, that just excites me. I I I I love the fact that we are able to have the conversations we can have here. Um yesterday on Jacob's Just Streaming, um we're talking, Jacob and I were talking with Nehema and and you know, she was sharing some of her story and There's so much going on right now in the world. Religion is being disrupted because of technology, because of globalization, because of just the the rapid pace of change. All of this is happening right now. And this is a big part of the meaning crisis, but people can't live on nihilism. And Part of what we're doing, and this is, I think, this is also key to Jordan's mission. Part of what he's doing is combating nihilism. And part of the reason that the new atheists sort of, you know, wind up in the crosshairs is that they were pretty much gateway drugs into a lot of nihilism for people, and it just doesn't work. Early on, Somebody started watching my videos from this area, and he contacted me. And I you had know, maybe three hundred subscribers. Contacted me, wanted to go out to lunch, and we went out to lunch together. And he told me, he said, "Yeah, I was deep into i. He was. He had he had gone to seminary. He he grew up in a Christian home. He was a deeply committed Christian. And Sam Harris just did a number on him." And he became a new atheist and he gave up all that belief and he gave up that practices and so on and so forth. And at some point he got married and he had a child, had a little daughter who was, you know, a young girl. And he looked at that young girl one day and says, I cannot believe that she is of no ontological greater quality than any other mammal. I would die for that little girl. There's something wrong with this picture of the universe from, from new atheism. It doesn't work. There must be something more going on, and he found Peterson, he found me, and of course, where he's at right now, I don't know, I haven't talked to him, I haven't spoken with him for years, but we're working on this stuff, and I believe Jesus is in the conversations. I wouldn't be doing this if, you know, I had a, we had a council meeting last night, and you know there are Sundays when <laughs> there are Sundays when I just think, "What on earth am I doing here?" And it's not that I think I should go off and spend all my time here in Internet Land <laughs> because this is just as nuts. <laughs> uh, Jesus calls us on to strange places sometimes and uh where he goes we must follow and we do so with fear and trembling you know it's story of peter peter walking on the water we look out and see jesus walking on the water it's like wow he can walk on water peter says jesus bid me come jesus says all right come on peter come on you can walk on water and he starts and he's probably thinking in his head, "I'm doing it, I'm doing it." And he looks down. And he sees the wind and the waves. He's like, "Ah!" He starts to sink. Jesus grabs him. Oh, Peter, why did you look down? So I, I, there are times here that it's like I'm Peter outside of the boat, <laughs> and I gotta listen to Jesus and say, "No, don't look at the wind and the waves. Keep your eye on me." Okay, Jesus, I'll keep my eye on you, but. I hear the wind and I feel the waves. (laughs) So that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. And you can't ask for anything better. You know, you want to be with Frodo and leave the Hobbit hole and go out for an adventure. You'll want to. You should. Everything inside of you is calling you to do it. You're going to face trolls. You're going to face dragons. But do it. You know. Marry that girl. Don't just sleep with her. Make that commitment. Join that church. Be there when the wind and the waves get tough and keep your eyes on Jesus. It's the point of that story. Um, Because if you take your eyes off him, you'll sink. All right. Poking around Jacob's conversation with Father DeYoung and others had um has had me looking way more into theology but i wonder about the merge of dragging my protestant friends into that conversation just because it's salient to me what is the point of theology anyway theology is a super useful tool can be Ideally, it helps the church stay out of holes. Usually what happens with theology is not that it prevents us from getting into holes, but it's what we do after we fall in one. Theology and uh, orthodoxy and heterodoxy um, co-evolve. So theology is really the record of the holes we've we've fallen into and what we try to learn from them. That's really what theology is. And part of what we've got going on right now is that via globalization, we are more aware now, you know, this, is, this has actually been a pattern because if you read Molly Worthen's Apostles of Reason um, in the 70s, there was a, the, the, the Orthodox Church has sort of been on the fringe in North America and they've kind of been the hot girl that every now and then somebody sort of gets news of her and goes over there and, you know, gets fascinated by the icons and the theology and the riches and the blessings of that whole tradition of Christianity. They'd never had any idea of fine. That's great. I've, you know, I'm, I'm richly blessed by Jonathan Peugeot and, and many of you who have gone over to Orthodoxy and I have, um, I want to cheer you on and, um, And I really pray that your life in that church becomes a blessing. But again, the goal of all of this is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And and Peugeot and Verveke talked about this in their last video too. If your Christian practice is not yielding the fruits of Christ, then what value is your practice? That's 1 Corinthians 13. your Christian practice, your church, your theology, all of this should make you more like Christ. And that is, you know, I I know in some, the way some of us hear it, that sounds sort of namby-pamby. Jesus is my buddy or Jesus is a squish or something like that. Uh, Jesus, you you can't read the Gospels and think Jesus is a squish. Maybe that'll be the title of this. Jesus is not a squish. But Jesus is also not a a moralist castigator he can do moralism but jesus jesus is way beyond that again he is he is the kind he 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 is so merciful and generous that when we look at him with his mercy and generosity it we it takes our breath away and we think that's that's irresponsible And then when he draws a hard line, he draws it so hard, we think, who can stand? That's who Jesus is. Now, I don't think any of us will be able to embody the breadth of that being that Jesus shows. That's because we're small. But we grow up into that as much as we can with the grace that he's provided and the context that he's given us and how we're living and moving and working today. There's the Christian life. Theology, your theology won't save you. We look to Jesus for salvation, not to theology. Theology is a good thing. Theology is an important thing for the church. But your theology didn't die on a cross for you. Your theology didn't walk out of that grave for you that's just remember that about your theology so you can get a lot of theology wrong that's the whole point about the sophisticated and unsophisticated christians unsophisticated christians might not know a lot of theology but they do know how to love the greatest of these is love lance made pvk say something (laughs) I can't read you guys in the um, Peterson is like the Polly Pockets. Oh my goodness! All right, that's it for today. Thank you all. Um, we'll I'll have to figure out a way, but it'll probably be the first. Um, let me look at my calendar here. Um, da, da 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 da. Oh, got it. Um, probably the first Friday of february that'll be the third that will do this again so thank you for joining me um yeah bridges of meaning i part part of the reason i'm not on the bridges of meaning discord server very often is i've just developed a distaste for discord <laughs> i just don't like the platform um i i find it it's it's just like a lot of other of you who have gone to Discord and said, I can't do Discord. It's hard to keep up. I can't keep up with it. Um, and it's it's all the text. I can't even keep up with all of the video that this little corner is producing. And so I tend to pop around sort of like a, ho- hopefully like a, a bee that sort of helps pollinate different flowers in this little corner. Um, and that's that's what I intend to do. I don't intend to run it. I don't intend to manage it. Um, I'm happy to let God and his spirit grow this thing the way he wants it. So that's it. Be careful. Might get fired. (laughs) (laughs) I've been fired many times. So, All right, Rick, end the transmission.